Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to become creative, especially for those of you who think you aren't, and how to trust yourself to make the right career moves, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has written the book on it. Well, if I'm going to be completely honest, he's written a lot of books on it. In fact, about 20 of them on that and many other topics as he evolved from a marketing guru and serial entrepreneur into his current manifestation as a teacher who believes that almost everything you're learning in school right now isn't preparing you for the real world of work. But before I introduce you to Seth Godin, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that features career advice and insights into different careers from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my creative cappuccino lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Seth Godin, the founder of Alt MBA, a 31-day online leadership workshop that provides students with the skills they need to become leaders who make real impact and meaningful change. Seth is also the founder of the Akimbo Workshops, which are proven, powerful, and efficient online communities that help people learn to see. Akimbo runs seminars for freelancers and bootstrappers and helps creatives become more creative. Managers learn to lead, and pretty much it teaches everyone how to create a podcast. And last but certainly not least, Seth is the author of 20 best-selling books, including Purple Cow, Tribes, and his most recent work, The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. Seth, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I think I was born caffeinated. You haven't seen me on caffeine and you don't want to. Oh, no. So you don't drink coffee. I, I wish I could. I brew my own. I roast my own beans. I have a uh, new old stock, 1979 Swiss uh, Cremini manual lever press espresso maker, but I wish I could. I can't. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. It sounds fancy though. Uh, Seth, I want to begin this interview as you and I were chatting just before we started in a slightly different way from the way I usually do. And that is rather than asking you about what you're doing right now with Akimbo and Alt MBA, I'd like to flash back 
to when you were the same age as most of my listeners, when you were in college, when you were at Tufts University in Boston. And did you have a double major in computer science and philosophy or was one of them your concentration? Uh, so, you know, when you get to college, first, thank you for having me. When you, when you get to college, you have to make a choice. Either it's high school, but with more binge drinking, or it's something other than that. And the vast majority of people have been seduced into thinking that the purpose of college is to fit in, to get good grades, to go hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt, and to fill the gaps with socializing. And my dad sat me down and he said, here's the deal. It's the same price whether you take four or five or six courses. And he also said, you're not going to go to law school, which was true. So don't worry about your grades. And the typical person on campus was carrying around a huge backpack loaded with books and notebooks and was spending hours in the library so that they could take their B minuses and turn them into A's. I found a loophole in the catalog and it allowed me to take pretty much any courses I wanted, except for Spanish, which I didn't want to take and call it a major in mechanical engineering, philosophy, and computer science. I so abused it that they took it out of the catalog when I was done. This is true. <laughs> but I took six courses every semester, and I had one notebook, and I never worried about what my grades were going to be because that's not why I was there. My goal was not to do well in class. My goal was to explore. And the magic of college is you probably don't have a day job. You probably don't have kids. Here's the last moment you have to explore. And with Steve Dennis, we built the largest student-run business in the world. We had uh, 400 employees on campus for the temporary employment agency we ran. We had a snack bar, a ticket bureau, a concert promotion business, a travel agency. Every week or two, we'd launch a new business. And I got paid $50 a week to do this because it was a nonprofit. And none of these things were hard. They were just scary because no one said, you can do this. And so let's fast forward 40 years. A friend of the family, real theater kid in high school, his whole thing was be in this play, be in this play. He gets to a famous Ivy League college and he goes to apply for the improv troupe. And he comes in 12th in the auditions and they only let in the top 11 people. And I say to him, start your own improv troupe. It's improv. It's not varsity football. That's the beauty of it. He never did. He never mm. did. And that's why I'm talking to you today. Because it doesn't matter what I did. It matters what have you been indoctrinated into believing you're supposed to do. Okay, fair enough. So did you know what you were going to do with your philosophy engineering degree when you graduated? I don't even know what I'm going to do in four weeks. You know <laughs> what I was going to do then. I, I'm asking you, Seth, because that is what has so many thousands upon thousands of college students overwhelmed with anxiety because they think they're supposed to know. So what was your first job after you graduated and how did you get it? Well, so the key is this. You're not anxious because you think you're supposed to know. You're anxious because you know deep down that you're an imposter. 
you know deep down that you're a fraud, that you're going to the world and asking for the job of your dreams that you have never done before. How dare you? And you know, one of the beauties of this generation is if you've come up in a peer-to-peer publishing world like we have now, you have published things in front of the whole world. You have made a video that anyone could see. You have posted text that anyone could read. That's new. And we can multiply that. That the whole idea is, can you create utility? Can you add value somewhere? And what I decided, what you could decide, is my goal when I leave this place is not to get a fancy job with a good salary. My goal when I leave this place is to be in a situation that has two attributes. One, a boss I can learn from, and two, high velocity. Put me in a place that's moving fast. And so after business school, I turned down a job at Parker Brothers. Wait, I'm sorry, but you, (laughs) so did you go directly from Tufts into business school? I did. I was very fortunate. You can't do that anymore. Not at a famous business school. I don't recommend anybody go to business school unless you want to work for uh, McKinsey or some consulting firm. It's not worth your time and money. Um, But when I had the chance to pick a job, it was my summer job, I said, where can I land where it's going to be a completely different place eight weeks after I get there? And how can I surround myself with people who are smarter than me? Because learning how to be a bureaucrat isn't very hard. And there's plenty of places you can learn how to do that. My sister was unfortunate enough to have a summer internship for the Social Security Administration. And after two days, she learned everything she could possibly learn. So that's all I was looking for. Show me a place that's going fast. And in 1983, that was the software business. And again, a whole bunch of lucky breaks. I worked with uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and Michael Crichton. And they put me in charge of way too many things. And over the course of eight weeks, I ended up with 40 employees working for me. But not because I was assigned to me, but because why not? I'm going to go for it. And unless you're working in a hospital where you could kill somebody, just go for it. Because why not? And what I love about the fact that you went to work for Parker Brothers while you were at Stanford getting your MBA is that you actually were obsessed with computer games. So you followed your interests. You didn't try to to reverse engineer it. I have to interrupt you. I'm sorry. First, I turned down Parker Brothers, and I'm really lucky that I did because even though they were famous, they laid off the entire staff two weeks after I got there. So that was... But number two, I wasn't obsessed with computer games. I've been playing games since I was 16. I love designing games. I was obsessed with making a ruckus. And I would have been just as happy working for Steve Harrell in Northampton, Massachusetts, growing his ice cream chain. And I would have been, I mean, I just wanted to be in a place that was moving. I don't believe that we are born with passions. I don't believe we are born with a destiny. I think that we invent one. And so for me, yeah, I'm really good at making games. I think that way. But there are other things I do too. And this idea of finding your authentic self is baloney. It's not true. You don't have an authentic self, but you have a chance to be consistent. And what became clear to me in college was if I had to get a job where I had to meet spec every day, fill in the blanks, show up on time and do what I was told, I would get fired and I would be unhappy. So I've spent the last 40 years avoiding that. Yeah. And thanks for correcting me. It was activism, Activision that you Uh, worked for. 
So what happened at Activision was, again, the fast growing thing. In 1983, Activision was the fastest growing company in the history of the world. Let's think about that for a minute. The fastest growing company in the history of the world. And the CEO of Activision came on campus to give a speech. And at the end of the speech, anyone could have walked up to talk to him, but no one did but me. And I went up to talk to him and I said, hey, Jim, loved your talk. I'd like to intern for you as your assistant this summer, because this is the fastest growing company in the history of the world. And I would like to see how you're doing it. And he said, here's my card. Come see me in two weeks. So what I did was I decided if I just went in and said, tell me what to do, I'll do it. If I went in and said, you can pick anyone and I'm anyone, he wouldn't have any time for me. So instead, I dug out an article by a guy named Ted Levitt, which I encourage everyone to read, called Marketing Myopia from 1963. And I walk into his office. Now, again, this isn't because I have a gift. I don't. It's because I had nothing to lose, just like you. And I walk into the meeting and I say, here's the thing, Jim, you guys make cartridges for the Nintendo. That's not going to last. But as we learn in this article, Marketing Myopia, what you should do is not define yourself as a Nintendo cartridge business, but define yourself as being in the entertainment business for a generation. So maybe you could go completely clean up in the computer game business because you'll have no competition. And Jim looked me in the eye and stood up to throw me out of the office. This was after one minute. And right then the door opens and his head of human resources walks in holding a copy of Cashbox Magazine. Cashbox Magazine was like Billboard in those days and it had a chart on the back, best-selling games. And the HR person comes and says, great news, we have nine of the 10 best-selling games in America this week, which was the first time that it ever happened. And so Jim leaves and goes down the hall to celebrate with all the other executives. I'm just sitting there. He didn't say, I'm just sitting there. (laughs) And he comes back in 20 minutes and he looks at me and he says, are you still here? I say, yeah. He says, okay, you start on June 1st and I leave. And then. uh, And how old were you at this point? 23. And so everyone says, wow, what a lucky break. And then the woman who I was dating, who lived in Boston, calls me up and says, you know, I said I was coming to to California for the summer, but I'm not. So I turned down the job at Activision, never worked at Activision for one day. And I went to Boston and worked for a company no one ever heard of. And because it was a company no one ever heard of, I was the only person who applied for a job there. Again, all of these little things are really good luck, but I'm leaving out all the things that were really bad luck. It doesn't matter. What matters is if you had enough privilege and you had enough advantage to go to the kind of college that you went to, and you're listening to a podcast like this, you have enough resources to go get a job at a company no one ever heard of and screw up because I screwed up a lot. And I was just really fortunate that my screw ups were all the right kind of screw ups in the sense that they didn't get me fired. One of the things that I have seen, Seth, among the many college students I've coached is that they get very fixated on a title and on a company and believe that that is the only path for them to break into an industry that interests them. What's your opinion about that? Okay. So there, are, if you go to Target or Walmart, you will see near the cash register, a machine that looks like an ATM. And that machine is actually how you apply for a job there. 
You never speak to a human. You type in your social security number, answer three questions, and they hire you. If that's the kind of job you're going for, you're going to be treated like a cog in the system. And if you really care about an industry, the chances in 2022 that you will incrementally work your way up to the point where you have an interesting job are close to zero because they have this huge, huge funnel, right? Where a thousand people start and then it's a hundred. And then it's by the time you get to 10, which is one out of a hundred people, now you have an interesting job. That's no way to spend your life. The way to skip those steps is to matter before they hire you. And the way to matter before they hire you is to publish the most definitive blog or newsletter on the topic, to put into the world your insight and vision about how something in this industry could be better, to put at least as much effort into that as you put into some silly project in school for which you got an A minus. Because if you are regularly and persistently leading the way that people in an industry can think, right? Like, so let's say, let's just say you want to be an executive at Starbucks. Well, one way you could do that is by visiting a hundred Starbucks, wouldn't take you very long, take pictures of the inside of each one and regularly blog your analysis and criticism of the setup, the planogram, the, the flow and everything else of one Starbucks after another. You will now be the world's expert on coffee shop retail dynamics. Do you think that will make it easier for you to get a job at Pete's? Of course it will. And so pick your industry and speak up early and often. Connect and lead, ask questions. Don't go on an informational interview. Have people call you because they want your information. Because that's how you, if you think this is what you want, this is how you're going to get it. I think that's amazing advice for someone who's a little farther along in their journey. You shake your no. head. But no. I think that for a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old who has been, and you're the guy who's written about this, brainwashed into yeah. being a cog in a wheel to suddenly get them to shift their mindset like that is really hard and maybe overly ambitious. What makes you think you're going to shift your mindset if you get a job as a clerk, right? And then you get promoted to senior clerk. And then, you, no, if you don't shift your mindset now, you're never going to shift your mindset. You have nothing to lose right now. This is your only asset. Everyone else is ahead of you. The only asset you have is that you can do stupid things that might not work. And if they don't work- <laughs> I'm still doing them. Right, but if they don't work, no one's going to notice because that's the way the media works. So another example, I did um, a series last March. I love dark chocolate and I love the people in the dark chocolate industry. And like, here's some of the examples of things from the dark chocolate industry. Ooh. And the thing is, it's dark chocolate is produced, grown by some of the poorest farmers in the world. But then craftspeople working with the farmers who are paying them significantly more than Hershey or Nestle, work with them to produce this luxury good that only costs $8. That's fantastic. And so I did a series of interviews on Instagram and I did 20 of them. And each time I did one of the interviews, that company's sales grew because I just wanted to give them a platform. Well, whatever industry you care about, you can do the same thing. And it doesn't matter if someone shows up for the interview, just talk to them. Just say, if I was talking to Jim from Activision, these are the seven things I would tell him. 
Here's a memo I just wrote to Bob Iger, retired CEO of Disney. Put the memo online. See what someone says. Maybe it'll spread. And even if none of it works, you're going to learn more doing that than you ever learned in college. And it's free. So how did you get into marketing? We're all in marketing. But how did you, back in the day when we didn't have this, the cell phone, the Zoom rooms, how did you do it? Well, what do you think marketing is? Selling. Well, it's storytelling. It is storytelling in a way that gets other people to change their minds. And so if you run to be head of the safety patrol in fifth grade to keep kids from tripping in the hallway, you are marketing in the sense that you have to stand up and tell people why you should be head of the safety patrol. Uh, I came in third. And if you want to get the school to shift the way they calculate class rank when you're in 11th grade, you have to tell a story to the principal. That's marketing. We're all in marketing. And so I had some of my early marketing experiences working with my dad. His company mistakenly decided to get into the ski business without knowing what they were doing. And I was only like 13 or 14, but I had things to say about the stories that we could tell. And when I was in college, rolling out one of these little businesses after another, like, okay, there's a coffee shop. Well, calling it a coffee shop instead of a cafe, that's marketing. Figuring out what the price of a cup of coffee is going to be, that's marketing. You learn how to do marketing by doing marketing. And I think marketing now has a bad rap because some people think it means hype and hustle and spam. That's not marketing. That's hype and hustle and spam. Marketing is telling a true story to people who want to hear it. Love it. So I was going to ask you, how did you get into entrepreneurship? But it sounds like that also started super early. Well, and it's the same thing, right? That if you bring, you know, five bags of Fritos to school that you bought for 15 cents, with, you know, stole from your mom and you sell them for 30 cents each, you're an entrepreneur. And then you can take the profits, pay back your mom and buy some more Fritos and do it again tomorrow. And you've been indoctrinated into thinking that's somebody else's job. Well, okay, fine. Go get yourself a job at General Motors as a clerk. But I'm guessing that then you would be wasting your time listening to this podcast. How do you teach someone, Seth, especially a college student or a young professional who thinks, I'm not creative, I'm not in the arts, I didn't take English lit, that they are in fact a creative and need to be creative. I don't know if I have to teach them that as much as I have to help them look in the mirror and see it, right? So a couple of weeks ago, you were late on your way to a football game and there was a traffic jam and you realized that if you got off at this exit and took three left turns and went that way, you could beat the traffic. Well, that's creative problem solving, I think. And maybe you decided to organize a retreat for your sorority and you needed a way to figure out how to get Airbnb to let you rent a certain place, even though they didn't want to. That's creativity. And, you know, you at least once wrote a paper that wasn't plagiarized. I'm guessing that your ability to put 20 words in a new order that have never been in that order before is creative. So you're not really asking me, are you creative? What you're asking me is if you put your creativity in front of other people, will they still like you? And the answer is probably not. But then you get to do it again. And then you get to do it again. And then you get to do it again. And 
if you want to read my first book, please feel free from 1986, but it's not very good. And if you want to look at um, you know, some of the stuff I did when I was a book packager, please do, but it's not as good as the stuff I do now. And Miles Davis did not record Kind of Blue, the first album he ever made. Kind of Blue, which only took four days, by the way, best-selling jazz album of its time, it didn't take four days. It took 18 years, but it only took four days when he showed up in the studio because he kept doing it wrong for a long time to learn how to do it right. Speaking of doing it right, you've already mentioned the fact that you have done it wrong and screwed up over the years and whatnot. And one of the questions that I try to ask all my guests, Seth, is to share a time in their professional life when they really screwed up. <laughs> Maybe when they failed, because it's super easy for someone who's 22 to look at a Seth Godin who is quite a bit older than 22 at this point and say, I bet that guy never really dropped the ball. Have you? So there's two kinds of uh, screw ups. The biggest ones are the uh, errors of omission. The people I didn't give the benefit of the doubt to, the people I didn't treat fairly, the opportunities I failed to pursue, the chances I had to build something or invest in something. And I said, I don't get it. And those have cost me billions of dollars and broken my heart. Billions of dollars and broken my heart. But those aren't the ones you're asking about. You know, the early in my career, uh, the, the software that I was building, we didn't want to shrink wrap it. And so I ordered 10,000 little tiny Velcro dots that would connect and keep them shut. Uh, but I failed to test whether the Velcro dots would stick to the packaging or not, and they didn't. And so all these senior people in the company are busy putting the packages together to meet our deadline and none of the Velcro dots are sticking. But you survived that. A bigger one is, you may have heard of a company called AOL. AOL used to be our biggest customer. Uh, at the time I had 50 employees and we were running a series of online promotions for AOL. We invented email marketing. And there was also uh, a company called Carter Wallace, which made a deodorant called Arid Extra Dry. They were another one of our customers. And one morning, all the AOL customers opened their email and discovered that they're getting emails about Arid Extra Dry deodorant. And that's a really big problem. And so uh, the client that AOL calls up and their stock price was very fast moving and she was very uh, stressed. And she yelled at us about the fact that we had screwed up. I said, no problem, we got to fix it. And the next week, the emails went out and it was wrong again. And Audrey called me up, screaming even louder. And I said, you're absolutely right, Audrey. This is inexcusable. I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to fly to Vienna, Virginia, where you're located. I'm going to apologize to you face to face so you know how serious we're taking this. And it will never happen again. And Audrey said, if you set foot on this campus, I will have you arrested. And so our team completely scrambled. We hired somebody we couldn't afford. We rebuilt all of our systems. And the next week I get into the office at 5 a.m. because there's no Wi-Fi at home. It hadn't been invented yet. I get in the office at 5 a.m. and I open my AOL account and there's an email from Arid Extra Dry. And I call up Dan, my head of tech. He's in Boston. And if Dan hadn't been in the basement office, he would have jumped out the window. It doesn't work if you're in the basement. It turns out that our system had worked and only three people had gotten the incorrect email. 
But what you learn from situations like this is you can't be cavalier. You have to be serious. There are consequences to your actions. You should start small and work your way up. But what you also learn is if you want perfect, you're not in the right line of work, no matter what line of work you're in. There is no perfect. Final question, Seth. And this is less about a mea culpa and more about helping students who are in school right now learn from the life experiences of my guests. So with that in mind, if you could go back to Tufts and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? It's pretty simple. I wouldn't take back one of the mistakes because the mistakes are why I'm here today. And I am so lucky that I am here today. And the mistakes are part of the deal. And so if I had to say something to my other self, it would simply be, it's going to be okay. And that's what I would tell everybody listening here. It's going to be okay. Seth is the host of the top-ranked Akimbo podcast. It's about our culture and about how we can change it and bend it, which is actually what Akimbo means. It's the bend in a river or the bend in an archer's bow. He's also the founder of two online communities, the Akimbo Workshops, as well as Alt-MBA. We will have links to both in show notes. Seth, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee or water, whatever you had in your mug a few minutes ago with me and the T4C community. This was just wonderful. Well, thank you for letting me rant. It's always a pleasure. And I hope everyone goes and makes a ruckus because that's what we need from people. Lord knows we need your help. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.